Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. It's Friday, so I have another murder case for you today. Today's case is a solved case and thankfully was solved fairly quickly. However, the story is very tragic and can be hard to listen to. This case is one that I was briefly familiar with, but I have to say that I haven't seen very many podcasters or YouTubers cover this case in length. Here at Crimeaholics, we try and do our very best to do some of those lesser-known cases, but some of you may be familiar with this one. Today's case is on the brutal murder of Rachel Berkheimer. Rachel Rose Berkheimer was born on January 16, 1984 to her parents Bill Berkheimer and Denise Weber in Everett, Washington. Denise described her daughter as being such a special person who was known to always be bubbly and happy. She was very athletic and at a young age, she was out playing the boys on the basketball court. So many people were blown away by her athleticism, according to her father, Bill. Rachel was also known for her incredible sense of humor, and her father, Bill, said she could easily have made a career for herself on stage. But Rachel's dream was to someday become a veterinarian because she absolutely loved animals. Rachel was very well-liked and very loved young lady. She was popular amongst her friends, and the family always joked that her father, Bill, was her personal answering machine, because any time the Berkheimer phone rang, it would be for Rachel. Rachel was just like any other girl making her way through high school. She was this incredible person that people depended on, and she was always there to make someone laugh or give them a word of advice when they were down. Rachel was so ambitious that she would write her weekly goals on her bedroom mirror every single week so she knew what to focus on and what to strive for. But things got really dark for Rachel when she had lost a total of six of her closest friends within a short span of time, all due to some wild or crazy tragedy ranging from accidental shooting, drowning, and even suicide. The loss of her six friends within such a short span of time really sent Rachel kind of spiraling down into a deep and dark place in her life. She was struggling tremendously with grief, and she was struggling to kind of figure out how to navigate it. I cannot imagine the incredible weight this must have been on Rachel to have all of these people that she loved and was close with ripped away during her teenage years. Not to mention, one of the individuals was in a tragic car accident, and it happened to be Rachel's very best friend named Corey. This loss was the absolute hardest for her to handle because the two of them were so incredibly close, and they were described as soulmates and almost like this brother-sister relationship. And once more, I can't imagine being an adult going through these tragic losses one by one, but to go through this as a teenager just seems so incredibly unfair. 
As I said, this loss of Corey was very hard for Rachel, and it was after this point that her family really saw Rachel's bright light slowly begin to dim. Her sister Megan recalls it being like this literal transformation that took place right in front of their eyes. Everything was slipping away from Rachel. Her level of joy for things in life was diminished. Things that once were a high priority for her no longer mattered, and her ambition for life and her goals withered away. Rachel was literally crumbling, and her family felt utterly helpless. Rachel's sister Megan always tried to make that connection with her sister like they so often did, but she was closed off completely from those sisterly heart-to-hearts. Eventually, Rachel dropped out of high school and began running with a really rough crowd of people that did a lot of partying and drugs. Her family became aware of her new love interest when they received a $600 phone bill that Rachel had racked up from taking collect calls from her boyfriend, John Anderson, who was at the time sitting in jail for some unknown crimes. Likely, those crimes were something dealing with theft or drugs because that was typically what he was into. It would eventually come out that John Anderson was like scary obsessed with Rachel. And not only was he constantly calling from prison, but he would send long detailed letters about how she was so special to him. And in one of the letters, he had even wrote that he would, quote, murder a million people if I had to just to be with you, end quote. When Bill got that phone bill and saw that it had said Shelton Correctional Facility, he approached Rachel and confronted her about it. And Rachel assured her dad that he was a good person and that though he's made mistakes and was behind bars currently, she saw the good that was within him. And that was literally Rachel as a person. She was always trying to find the good in people. But when he got out of jail, John became even more obsessive with Rachel and was extremely controlling. Whenever the two of them would get together, John would sniff Rachel's clothing and her hair just to see if he could smell the scent of another man on her. Originally, when Rachel's sister Megan learned of her boyfriend, she assumed that Rachel liked him because he was a bad boy. And it seems like a lot of teen girls went through that phase of liking or being attracted to bad boys. I know I did myself, and so did many of my friends, but usually it's just that, a phase. And eventually, these young teen girls settle down with nice, respectable men. John Anderson was more than just a bad boy, though. He was one of the leaders of a gang that dubbed themselves the Northwest Mafia and were known for drugs, violence, and petty crimes. As the relationship progressed for Rachel and John, Megan began noticing bruising on her sister's body and began to worry and fear that this was much more toxic than her sister just being interested in a bad boy who got in trouble with the law. Megan recalls in an interview that she grabbed her sister and was shaking her and yelling at her saying, quote, Rachel, what are you doing? Look at yourself, end quote. Those closest to Rachel knew how bad this relationship was for her. 
every day the fighting was intense and then would get smoothed over by sweet words and promises to be better, only to end in a fight again. Eventually, Rachel said enough is enough, and she knew that she deserved better. Rachel went to her sister and sat on her bed telling her about how scared she was and concerned because John Anderson had threatened her more times than she could count, but she wanted out so badly. And she finally cut it off with John and really turned towards her family for support. Shortly after cutting it off, her family began noticing changes in Rachel once more, but this time they were positive changes. She was going back to being the Rachel they've always known and loved, and she began spending more and more time with her family, building back the relationships that she had neglected while together with John. She and her mother began spending more time together, and Rachel started attending church again. Her father recalls a morning when he and his daughter were outside on the porch and Rachel was just radiating with happiness. And she turns to her father and tells him how she met an incredible friend named Maurice. Maurice Rivas was an 18-year-old young man who grew up within a troubled home and was in and out of the foster care system. And he found a family within John Anderson's Northwest Mafia gang. But like Rachel, Maurice was ready to get out of the gang-banging lifestyle and really wanted more out of life. And that's how he and Rachel first formed a relationship. They bonded over wanting more than just being a part of this gang of John Anderson's. When Rachel told her father about Maurice, she was so excited because the two of them had made plans to go back to school, finish out their remaining courses, and have the opportunity to walk with their graduating class. Though things were looking up for Rachel, John still had this hold over her and she found herself being drawn back in by him and the relationship continued to be on again and off again. During one of the off times with John, Rachel began dating one of his very closest friends, which this obviously set John into a fury. During what authorities believe to be a drug-induced paranoia, John Anderson gets it into his mind that Rachel has been sharing gang secrets with friends and rivals of the Northwest Mafia. He also convinces all of his fellow gang members that she was doing these things as well. And as I'm sure you know, this is a huge no-no and gets many people hurt and killed within the gang world. Rumors began circulating and soon Rachel heard that there was a hit out on her and she really started to fear for her life. She went to her older sister, Megan, and confided in her about what she heard. And while Megan took the rumors seriously, she felt that he was just some dumb young punk who was trying to sound tough. She did warn Rachel to stay away from John, to be more cautious and aware of her surroundings, but Megan assumed that this would eventually blow over and it wasn't anything really to worry about. September 23rd, 2002, Rachel attended a party with several members of the Northwest Mafia at a duplex in Everett, Washington. She was there with Maurice Rivas, who she felt safe with, and someone who would protect her if things were to go south. In total, there was seven members of the Northwest Mafia at this duplex party. 
Things at this party started out normal. They were laughing, sitting around on the couch, just hanging out, smoking marijuana, and playing video games. And in a sense, this was Rachel's way of showing the guys of the gang that she was loyal to them and that she did nothing wrong. Everything seemed to be going well until John Anderson showed up and he was not happy when he walked in and saw Rachel having a good time with all of his buddies. An argument broke out that escalated to John slapping some of the guys around and then guns were drawn on each other. This is when Rachel got scared and tried to leave the duplex, but John grabbed her by the hair and yanked her back and hit her in the face and knocked her down to the floor. Rachel was then surrounded by many of the members she had just been hanging out with, and they all began kicking her and beating her. What Rachel didn't know was that this entire party was a planned attack, and everyone present at the party was all in on it. As they continued to kick and beat Rachel, John ordered the music to be turned up to drown out her screams. After some time, they take Rachel into the garage where they bound her with tape, shoved a sock in her mouth, and covered her mouth with tape as well so she was unable to scream for help. They then left her lying on the cold garage floor for hours as they went back inside the house to do more drugs, drink, and figure out what they were going to do with her next. Some of the things that they had discussed was gang raping her. They also discussed the possibility of ransoming her because they believed that her dad would pay to get her back. While Rachel was laying on the garage floor in terror, the garage door suddenly opened as the owner of the duplex, Trissa Connor, was coming home. And Trissa was one of the girlfriends of one of the guys in the Northwest Mafia. She saw Rachel beat up and bound and went inside the home to retrieve a knife from the kitchen so that she could cut her hands free and her feet loose. John caught Trissa trying to free Rachel and he started to go into a rage. Trissa began screaming at everyone in the house that she was going to call the cops and that they needed to get Rachel out of her garage. The guys decided to stuff Rachel, who was just four foot eleven, into a duffel bag and stick her in the back of a jeep. Four of the gang members, including John Anderson and Maurice Rivas, drove 30 minutes into the Cascade Mountains. And I want to stop for a second and mention that Maurice Rivas was the one who Rachel friended and started making plans to go back to school with. He was the one that told her that he wanted to leave the gang and make something of himself. But what Rachel didn't know was that all of that was all part of John Anderson's sinister plan. He had Maurice befriend Rachel so she would trust him. The crew of guys that loaded Rachel up and drove into the mountains all decided that this was John Anderson's mess and he needed to be the one to figure out what to do with Rachel and to handle it himself. John decided that the only way to handle this situation was to kill Rachel. John and two of the other men left to go retrieve shovels, leaving behind Rachel to be tended by Maurice. While alone, Rachel told Maurice that she knew that she was going to die and that if it was true and she was, her only request was that he made sure that they didn't drown her. 
Now, what absolutely breaks my heart about all of this is that Rachel knew in her mind that this was it. She didn't beg Maurice to help her. She didn't beg him to let her go. She simply begged him to make sure that they didn't drown her. And while alone, he had the opportunity to help her escape. Yet he sat there waiting for the others to return so they could finish what they started. When the others returned, they began digging a hole. And while they were digging, Rachel, who was still inside of the duffel bag, begins to make some noises. John took the shovel and hit the duffel bag as hard as he could with it. They then proceeded to drag her out of the duffel bag, forcing her to watch where her grave was being dug. The men then tried to take her clothing off, but Rachel denied them of doing that and she held her chin high and she said that she would take them off herself. They removed all of her jewelry, but she begged them to allow her to keep one single ring, which was a ring that was given to her by her good friend Corey, who was killed in that tragic car accident. John told her hell no that she couldn't keep the ring and he took that final ring from her finger. They then told Rachel to climb down into the grave that was dug and to lie face down. Rachel got down on her knees and began to pray and John told her, quote, don't worry about it. You'll be up there with him soon, end quote. While Rachel laid face down in the grave that she watched them dig, John Anderson began shooting her in the back of the head and in her back. The gun jammed, he cleared the gun, and then he finished emptying out the clip into her. When nobody had heard or seen Rachel, her family began getting frantic, knowing that whatever happened to Rachel and wherever she was, it wasn't good. They started handing out flyers and hanging posters with her picture on it, offering reward money for her return. Her father, Bill, would do media interviews just trying to bring awareness to his daughter's disappearance. But authorities didn't have to wait too long before they got the first break in the case, and it came from the mother of a man named Jeffrey Barth. Jeffrey Barth was one of the Northwest Mafia members who was present at the party that Rachel had attended on the night that she was murdered. And whatever Jeffrey's mother told authorities led them to the Jeep that was used to transport Rachel inside that duffel bag. That Jeep belonged to a man named Matthew Durham. When authorities brought Matthew in for questioning, he refused to talk. He completely clammed up until they put the pressure on him, letting him know that they believed that he was involved in Rachel's disappearance, and it was up to him to bring Rachel home for her family, and that they know he knows where she is. And he cracks and agrees to lead investigators to the general area where Rachel was murdered. Authorities brought out cadaver dogs and search teams, and they scoured the area for two days before Rachel's gravesite was located, 10 days after her murder. Matthew Durham also gave authorities the list of names of everyone who was present at the party and their role in everything. With a search warrant in hand, investigators swarmed the duplex in Everett where everything began. They were able to collect a lot of different evidence and eventually found the gun that was used to kill Rachel located in a pond. They also recovered the shovels that were used to dig the grave where Rachel's body was discovered. 
In total, eight suspects were arrested and many of them turned on each other to tell their stories of that night. Five of those suspects took plea deals for lesser sentences in exchange for trial testimony against John Anderson for murdering Rachel, John Whitaker, who helped dig Rachel's grave, and Yusef Jihad, who was one of the masterminds for the murder plot. The Berkheimer family made sure that they were in court every single day for all three of their trials. I can imagine how devastating that was to sit through three different trials hearing the details over and over again about their daughter's death. And what is even more disgusting is that the entire time during the trial for John Anderson, he was completely smug. He turned around and smiled at the family. He would look back at them and wink at them. And what a complete slap in the face to have the person who saw their child, their sister, take their very last breath, be so mocking and callous towards them. He clearly had absolutely zero remorse for what he did. And my heart goes out to Rachel's family for sitting through those trials and holding themselves together. I feel like I would have come unglued if that was my loved one that he had murdered and he was acting in this manner. John Anderson received life in prison. John Whitaker also received life in prison for his role in helping dig Rachel's grave. And Yusef Jihad was sentenced to 37 years in prison. Maurice Rivas and Matthew Durham originally each received 26 years in prison, but in April of 2022, they had their sentences reduced to 22 and a half years in prison due to a state Supreme Court ruling that was to look at reducing or releasing some convicts due to the age that they were when their crimes were committed. That means both of these men will be out of prison within the next couple of years. Matthew Durham was 17 when he drove his Jeep with Rachel in the back of it to her murder scene. And Maurice was the one who helped lure and trick Rachel into going into that duplex. And he helped dig her grave and was present when she was shot and killed. In my opinion, Maurice should have been sentenced far longer than that. And he will be released shortly after he turns the age of 40. Now, granted, I know that he was given this lesser sentence due to the fact that he gave that trial testimony against John Anderson, but I still just think that he deserves far more time for his role in this entire thing. He will have so many opportunities to go on with his life, unlike Rachel. Sadly for the Berkheimer family, their days in the courtroom was not over with those three trials. In 2013, John Whitaker was given a retrial, which Bill Berkheimer said to Fox 13 that this trial was the hardest of all of them, mentally, emotionally, physically, in every aspect. The jury found John Whitaker guilty again and sentenced him once more to life in prison. Now, that woman, Trissa Connor, who found Rachel lying on the garage floor, told authorities she never called the cops because she was too afraid for her own safety as well as the safety of her daughter who was inside the duplex. According to the Seattle Pie, Trissa was one of 11 defendants named in a civil suit filed by Rachel's family. In the suit, they said that though Trissa was not directly involved in killing their daughter, she ignored Rachel's pleas for help and presented the opportunity for her to be murdered. 
In the same article, it continues on to say that Triss's insurance company settled out of court with the Berkheimer family for an undisclosed amount of money. Though the people responsible for Rachel's murder are behind bars, it's still not closure for her family. Rachel's family have their own life sentence, a life sentence of grief, a life sentence without her bright smile, her infectious laugh, and her bubbly personality. I want to wrap up this episode with something that her father, Bill, said in an interview. He talks about seeing a crime scene photo of the grave where his daughter laid for 10 days. When they removed her body from the shallow grave and took pictures, in one of them you could see the perfect outline, the perfect imprint where Rachel's hands had been. When she got in that grave face down, she had her hands together in front of her in a praying position. This gives Bill comfort knowing that Rachel was praying when she took her final breath. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook, you can join by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook. In there, we share all pictures and information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you want more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok also once more at crimeaholics.podcast. And lastly, if you'd like to follow myself personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care. 